morning again. Last week we began studying through the book of Ruth. We're going to continue that this morning. Uh, For our scripture reading, I'm actually going to read the entire first chapter of Ruth, though we talked about the first few verses last week. You can find that in your pew Bible around page 191. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back that you can grab and read from. And if you don't have a Bible at home, let me encourage you to to take that with you. Uh, Write your name in it, keep it, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Ruth chapter 1. Before I read, let's let's pray. Father, again, we come before you. Uh, we, We come to hear from you, to hear your Word. We pray that you would open my mouth, give me... Of wisdom and guidance, even as I speak, we pray that you would open all of our hearts, that we would be ready and able to hear. We pray that uh, your spirit would apply your word to our hearts uh, to draw us close to you and to transform us into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilihan died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, 
she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? And the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, we're going to spend actually two weeks looking at the remainder of this chapter. Uh, This week we're going to look at Naomi, and next week we're going to spend some time looking at Ruth. But as we look at Naomi, I want... I want to ask you a question. How would you how would you love somebody like Naomi? Now your answer to that question is is really dependent on the way you see Naomi, isn't it? See, is Naomi is Naomi a good guy or a bad guy? All right, that's kind of a silly question. I, I get that. But we tend to put people into those categories. Uh, often when, when I talk with my boys about, about history, they use those categories when they talk about wars, don't we? We always say these were the good guys and these were the bad guys. And yet our culture, I think, is getting a little tired of the, the perfect knights on white horses view of life. And so a lot of modern stories, they sort of flirt with making the, the bad guy, uh, the villain or the criminal, the, the protagonist of the story, right? The, the central character. And so you have movies like Ocean's Eleven, or, or the Broadway play Wicked, right? Or even kids' movies like Despicable Me, where the good guy is really the bad guy, but he's the main guy in the movie. And even when the good guy is a good guy, he, more often than not, is not morally good, right? So you have Tony Stark in the Iron Man movies. He's this arrogant, self-obsessed, and sexually immoral person, but he's the hero, right? He's the good guy. Now, some of these things show our our willingness to sort of tolerate immorality, even in our heroes. Uh, Some show our willingness to accept that uh, there are two sides to every story. And and some show our realization that not everything is as black and white as it appears. And yet we still still sort of gravitate to this good guy, bad guy scenario in life. Um, Some grab the good and overlook the bad. Some grab the bad and sort of ignore the good. We like black and white. It makes things easier. Uh, we like this sort of clean, deep paradise boxes. Uh, I think this is especially true in the church. Sadly, um, I think that's why many Christian movies aren't as great as they could be, right? The characters tend to be flat or one-sided. So that brings us back to the question, right? How would you love someone like Naomi? It depends, doesn't it? It, it depends on how you look at Naomi. Is she primarily a victim? Uh, a helpless sufferer? Or is she a rebellious sinner, probably just getting what she deserves? Or is she a saint, patiently enduring and appropriately mourning her loss? We're going to ask two questions this morning. I I think they're in your bulletin. Uh, How would you love someone like Naomi? That's the first question. And then how does God love Naomi? maybe is the more important question, but we'll get to that one. And and as we look at how you would love someone like Naomi, we're going to look at Naomi under these three different 
headings, right? Naomi as a sufferer, as a sinner, and as a saint. And by the way, that 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 paradigm comes from a book called Crosstalk uh, by a guy named Mike Emlet, and it's it's a great book about how uh, to apply the gospel from all of Scripture to all of life. So let me just recommend that book in passing. So how would you love someone like Naomi? Let's look at Naomi and her suffering. This is the most obvious, isn't it? This is what we talked about last week as well. Uh, Naomi has lost everything. She's been through it all. She's been through famine. She had to uproot and then leave her home. She left her friends and her family behind. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. Uh, she has no, no grandchildren. She's, she's impoverished and alone. How would you love her? Well, the Bible is, is kind of clear, actually. This is probably the easiest one. You, you weep with those who weep. See, we have this propensity uh, to try to fix people when we should simply be weeping with them. That's, that's what we're called to do, weep with those who weep. There, there may be some tangible needs, of course, that Naomi has, but if we love her, uh, what we really need to do is just is listen. Right? Listen, let her tell us uh, what those needs are. We need to weep with Naomi. We need to listen to Naomi. But there's more to Naomi than a sufferer. She's not just a passive victim. And we'll spend a little more time on this next one because I think the, the text develops this a little bit more this week. But we want to see we want to see Naomi's unbelief. We want to see where she fails uh, to believe and trust in her father. We see this in Naomi's responses to her situations. Uh, she she suffers these tragedies. She upon hearing then that the famine is over, she uh, starts out back on the road to Bethlehem. She leaves with her two daughters-in-law. But part of the way there, she she stops and she sends them back. They don't want to go, and so she has to convince them to leave. So we read it in verse 10. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they, have, they, they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, Naomi says her life is bitter. Exceedingly bitter, in fact. And then she picks that same theme up back in, in verse 20 a little later. She says to the women of Bethlehem when they finally get there, she says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? See, the first way we see Naomi's unbelief in this uh, chapter is in her bitter complaint. Listen to her language, right? The, the hand of the Lord was against her, verse 13. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with her, verse 20. The Lord has brought her back empty and has testified against her and brought calamity upon her, verse 21. 
Interestingly, there's no sense of accepting responsibility here. There's only blame. All of our trouble is attributable to God. Uh, Paul Miller, in his book, A Loving Life, he says, because Naomi hopes in God, her grief intensifies. When God does not meet our expectations, it opens the door not just to despair, but also to cynicism, to shutting down our hearts with God. That's what Naomi has begun to do. She's begun to shut down her heart to God. Her God has done this, and so she's all the more bitter. And notice she takes this name, Bitter. She doesn't just say that her life is bitter. She takes it as her very name. When she returns, she calls herself Mara Bitter. As, as one commentator said, this is a name with a history, right? This, this bitterness is not new to Israel's story. In fact, Israel's slavery in Egypt, you may remember, was described as being bitter. Maybe Naomi is consciously making this connection. Maybe she's saying, God has reversed his redemption for me. My life was good, but he's turned it around and made it bitter. He's undone his promises for me. He promised to bring me out of the bitterness of slavery into a good land. And now my life is bitter once again. And yet there's another irony here, because uh, although slavery, uh, Israel's slavery was described as, as bitter, immediately after the exodus out of Egypt... The Israelites come out of Egypt and God brings them up to a place which is called Mara, bitter, because the water there was bitter. So God brings his thousands of people out into the desert. He brings them to this place that has water and the water is bitter. What do the people do there? They grumble. They grumble against Moses saying, what shall we drink? You see, Naomi may be intending to make this connection with the bitterness of slavery, he actually makes this connection to the grumbling of Israel. See, it's not just Naomi's life that is bitter. She's bitter about it. And like Israel, she's grumbling in the wilderness. Naomi's bitterness shows that she has, she has faith, but it's mixed with unbelief. Her heart is divided. Because we see that not just in Naomi's bitterness, but also in the fact that she actually she does a little creative rewriting of history. Look at verses 20 and 21. Naomi says, you know, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi didn't go away full. She went away because of a famine, which was God's hand of judgment on Israel. She went away not because she was full, she went away because she was hungry. But Naomi rewrites history to justify her bitterness. Yeah, she had family when she left. That, that was true. But even the lack of family is now due to the rebellion of her family, not, not due the, to, to, uh, uh, to the capriciousness of God. It's not that God is willy-nilly zapping people. Right? Naomi's family lived in rebellion, and they suffered the consequences. But you know how pain is. And sometimes when we're experiencing pain that causes us to turn in on ourselves, and we begin to interpret the whole world as against us. That's what Naomi's doing. Her, her hermeneutic of life, right? The, the lens through which she views uh, life is not the person and work of God, but it's her own personal suffering. 
Have you ever been there? Where life starts to hurt and you, you look around and you just start to blame people. You just start to blame things. And really in your heart, whether you're conscious of it or not, you're just blaming God. Because of course he's the one who did all this. We just start to point the finger. We rewrite our story as long as, as long as we can make it so that somebody else is at fault. So we see Naomi's unbelief coming out in her bitterness, in her blaming. We also see it in her hopelessness. See, on the road, she tells her daughters-in-law to go back. Why? She has no hope that her situation will get better. Look again at verses 11 to 13. Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly good to me. For your sake, for the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, Naomi looks at her situation, she looks at herself, and she can't imagine a way out. There's no conceivable, humanly wrought solution to this problem. She sees her situation through the lens, again, of her own human ability. Notice, notice that what she says. She says, why go with me? Have I sons in my womb? I am too old to have a husband. Even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, what good would that do you? See, what Naomi's saying is, I can't change this situation. I'm not your savior. So turn around and go home. Which, of course, Naomi's right. She's not their savior. That doesn't mean there isn't one. And it's interesting, in this context, In this context, she encourages Ruth, a few verses later, to go back to her gods, verse 15. See, Naomi's kind of showing her hand a little bit. She's, she's become compromised in Moab. She's saying, the Lord hasn't taken care of me. He won't take care of you. You're better off with the gods of Moab. I'm not your savior, neither is the Lord. Go, go back to your gods. How would you respond to this? How would you respond to Naomi's bitter, blaming hopelessness? Rebuke the one caught in sin with gentleness? That seems kind of harsh here, doesn't it? I mean, kick her while she's down. I mean, she's lost everything and you're going to rebuke her? How do you love this suffering, bitter, blaming, hopeless woman? If Naomi were here in this church this morning, how would you love her? And really, with all that we've said about Naomi already, we, we may start to wonder, does Naomi have any faith at all? You know, I've sort of set up this paradigm, right? Naomi as a sufferer, Naomi as a sinner, Naomi as a saint. It's a saint? Is Naomi a saint at all? She's compared to Israel grumbling in the wilderness. She's blaming God for her trouble. She's hopeless that he can do anything about her situation. She's compromised with this pagan culture. Does Naomi have any genuine faith? Well, she is returning to Bethlehem after hearing the good news. Right? Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab 
that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, in light of what we've seen uh, before, bread in Bethlehem, right, food is about more than mere food. Right? This implies if the, if the famine was God's judgment on sin, then this implies forgiveness and restoration. Right? God is showing mercy to his people. He's removing the curse of the famine. That's what Naomi hears. The curse is over. The judgment is done. She responds to that good news with action. She returns to the land. Now, the writer of Ruth actually wants us to see this as Naomi's repentance. And, and you know that because the, the Hebrew word for repentance is actually the same as the Hebrew word for return. This word actually appears, this verb appears uh, some 12 times in this chapter and only a handful of times in the rest of the book. So the Hebrew, the, the writer just keeps using this word, repent, 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 or return, 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 again and again in the chapter. He's trying to clue us in to what's going on. This is Naomi's repentance. This is her turning back to God. Naomi hasn't become perfect, right? We've seen that. We know that. But she is on the right road. She's, She's on the road back to Bethlehem, back to the promised land, back to her God. We see a, a hint of her faith again uh, in, uh, in verse 8 when she says to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. See, on the one hand, she knows God. She, the Lord hasn't blessed her. The Lord's against her, she says. But maybe he'll bless you. I hope that he will. She believes, but she's wrestling. What about her complaint, right? Even her complaint actually is a hint at her faith. See, her complaint is born out of belief. She she believes, right, that God is in control. She believes that God is in charge. All of these things that that are happening, they're in his hands. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one who's in control of all things. She knows that. At the moment, she just doesn't like it. Have you ever been there, right, where you know God's in control, but you just don't like what he's doing in your life, and you're wrestling with it? Her complaint, from one perspective, is actually a sign of her faith, however fragile it may be at the moment. The bitterness is a sign of the unbelief mixed in, but she knows God is in control. How would you love Naomi? Struggling in her faith taking the first steps of repentance. What did the scriptures say? Well, encourage one another, build each other up. I don't squash the first humble steps of faith of this woman, however mixed they may be. What's that look like? You know, as we look at Naomi closely, the one thing we realize is that we can't put Naomi in a neat box. There's no simple label that fits her. It's too easy to label people, right, to to box them in, to make assumptions, and then just speak to who you think people are rather than who they really are because you haven't listened. We do that all the time. I do that all the time. Or to give kind of a one-sided monologue, Naomi, you know what your real problem is, is this. But real love looks and listens. It doesn't make snap judgments. It quick calls. It's much harder than that. 
But at the same time, even as we look at Naomi and we say, well, how do we love people like this? Do we realize how much we are like Naomi? That we're a mixed bag of faith and unbelief. That we're inconsistent in our best moments. You know, it's, it's hard to know that because we don't see our blind spots, right? That's what makes them blind spots. Did, did Naomi realize that her bitterness was rebellion? How much did she get? Did she realize that she had compromised with, with the Moabite paganism of her day? Did she understand that? See, we need the body, don't we? We need the body to speak in to our mess, into our blindness. We need other people. We need the church we were talking about in Sunday school this morning so that we can see our own sin, our own unbelief. How do you love someone like that? It's not easy. You listen, you, you look, you, you mourn, you encourage. There's a more important question, isn't there? There is a more important question than how do you love someone like Naomi, and that is how does God love Naomi? How do we see that here in this chapter? How do we see God at work? See, Naomi saw God's judgment loud and clear. She knew it. She knew that God, God didn't like her and her husband's and her family's sin. She got that. But she didn't see the bigger picture. She didn't see that she was in the middle of a larger story. You see, the book doesn't end with chapter 1. That would be a sad, tragic story. And I think, in some ways, this is always the answer to the problem of evil, You know, even in a philosophical sense. That just because there's evil in the story, that doesn't make the author evil. Uh, just because there's evil in the story, just because bad things happen, that doesn't mean that evil wins. What about the rest of the story? Right? If you're struggling with hardship in life, we, one of the things we need to do is, is let life play itself out. Uh, see what God will do. Put your trust in Him. He is faithful in life and in death. You know, and, and really, Naomi and we are in the middle of a, of a larger story of redemption that God is working out through Jesus. You know, Naomi's grandson, through Ruth, will be the ancestor of King David, who will be the ancestor of King Jesus. How could Naomi know that God is using her story to prepare for the coming of the Messiah? Naomi had no clue, but that's what God was doing. He was writing a bigger story in Naomi's life. Do you trust God even in hardship, even when you can't understand what he's doing? Do you trust that, that his wisdom is sufficient, that his plan is good, that he knows what he's doing even if you don't know what he's doing? And of course, one of the patterns in this story that God is writing, we see this all throughout scripture, one of the patterns is, is that it's that when we hit bottom that God acts. He, he waits till the last minute. He waits beyond the last minute. You, you see this everywhere. You see it in the story of Abraham and Sarah, right? A commonly known story, right? God promises to give them a child. And then he waits and waits and waits until Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90. And, and Sarah says, after I am worn out and old, uh, after I am worn out and my husband is old, shall I have this pleasure? Sarah says, at this point in life, it's too late. And of course, that's exactly the point. It is too late. When all hope of human ability is lost, that's when God acts. Because that's when he gets the glory. It's not our strength, it's his strength. 
Look at the Exodus. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They're powerless. There's no hope, humanly speaking. And then God acts. Or, or look at the wilderness, right? God brings his people out of Egypt into the wilderness. Thousands of Israelites in the wilderness. There's no water. There's no food. They're hopeless. They grumble. And then God acts. Or look at Jesus. Jesus, who, who, who is arrested by his enemies, beaten and nailed to a cross, and he goes into the grave. And death is as bad as it gets. But Jesus didn't stay dead. There was no human solution, but then God acts to bring redemption, to bring forgiveness, to bring resurrection in Jesus' case. And there are hints of God acting here in, in chapter 1 of Ruth. We're going to see him work throughout the book, but even here there are hints. There's bread in Bethlehem, right? The, the, the house of bread is being restocked, so to speak. The barley harvest, they get to Bethlehem right at the time of the barley harvest. God gives Naomi these, these glimpses of hope that he's at work. He shows his grace. See, Naomi's problem is she, she doesn't know that God is the one who calls things into being that are not. Right? She thinks, there's no way I can have a kid. You might as well just go back to, the, to your Moabite family. She forgets that, that God, is able to, God is able to make things happen that we can't make happen. And so God gives her hope by sending bread, by removing the curse. And that's what Naomi needs. She needs hope. Yeah, yes, she needs someone to, to look and to listen, to mourn and encourage with her, but she really needs hope that, that something can change. And that hope is found in, in the gospel. You know, this is where Jesus comes in. He comes to suffer with those who suffer. He comes to suffer with the Naomi's of this world. He experiences the bitter judgment of God for us. You know, Naomi thinks she's, she's under God's bitter judgment. She, she doesn't know bitterness to its fullest. She doesn't know the fullness of God's judgment on sin. God's hand is not fully against Naomi, even though she thinks it is. His judgment of her was tinged with mercy. Yet God's hand was truly and fully against Jesus on the cross. He goes into the grave. He dies for our sin. He rises again to give hope because in his death, death is defeated. And in his resurrection, we see, we see the fullness of life. In his fullness, we see our fullness. Our life is in his life. Let him work out his story in your life in his timing. Because, you know, one day Jesus is actually going to return. And though this whole life for you be full of famine, and maybe it will be, on that day, this whole world will, will be a Bethlehem. This whole world will be a house of bread. This whole world will be a place of fullness at the return of Jesus. That's our hope. Hope in that day. Seek to, to give that hope to others, to the, to the Naomi's in your life, as you hold out Jesus in the resurrection, which is the only hope of the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes to see Jesus, open our eyes to see Jesus in his death for our sin, but also in his resurrection. That we would have hope that no matter what sufferings we go through in this life, you are working out your story of redemption. And we have hope that, that at the end, at the return of Jesus, we will dwell in a place without suffering, 
uh, with no more, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. We will dwell with you. We will see you face to face. Father, we long for that day. Increase our hope, increase our longing for that day. We pray in Jesus' name.